1: This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more.
0: Hello, friends. I'm Effie Parks. Once a month, I release this extra special episode in a series I call A Rare Collection. It features a few people from the rare disease community, each telling a true story with the same theme. I'm super excited to present the 10th episode in the storytelling series, I've always been moved by storytelling, and I believe there's so much power in them for both the listener and the storyteller. I'm the luckiest podcaster ever in that this is what I get to do for fun, passion, and purpose. Today's episode is super cool. There are three female scientists from the rare disease community, and I just admire them so much. And the theme for today is unexpected findings. The storytellers have the utmost freedom to be creative and to take the theme wherever their heart desires. Here's a story from Katherine Inston.
2: My name is Katherine Inston. I am a PhD candidate in neuroscience in Toronto and CEO of Variant. And my unexpected finding was the rare disease community. I started my PhD in basic neuroscience as a learning and memory researcher. My supervisor, Dr. Amy Ramsey, is a brilliant professor who's been studying the GRIN1 gene for decades. And we were always studying it from the perspective that this gene is fundamental for life. So humans have this gene, but the one sequence is phylogenetically highly conserved across all forms of life. So we find it in everything from giraffes to eels, and even plants and bacteria have analogues of this gene. And if the gene is completely non-functional, the organism will die. And we were studying mice with variants to their GRIN1 gene and they had learning and memory problems, as well as physical impairments and seizures. As you all know, we are in the wild west of rare disorder discovery and personalized medicine. And in the last 10 years, genetic testing has exploded. And a few years after I started in the Ramsey lab, all of a sudden we started getting contacted by the families of children who had variants to grow one. So my boss started getting emails from these families and many of them also started reaching out to me on social media where I'd been posting about the work that we do in the lab. And suddenly our work had this whole new clinical purpose and real people who weren't just science nerds like us who needed to know about our work, and we had had no idea that these families existed. One of the projects that I'd been involved in, in a minor way, very early in my career, was one that the parents were very interested in. So in this paper, we'd taken our GRIN1 mice. These mice, just like the kids, have a congenital variant, which causes cognitive impairments and seizures. So we waited until the mice were adults, and then we reversed the mutation using genetics, and they thrived. Their phenotype just got so much better, and that was an unexpected finding just in the basic neuroscience nerd world, because it speaks to the fundamental plasticity and the malleability of the mature adult brain in a way that hadn't been shown before. But more unexpectedly, this was a light for the greed disorder families. It ended up being proof of concept for a gene therapy. Um, and that, you know, like even though one doesn't exist yet, that there's hope that even if the kids become adults before it comes, that it could change their lives and circumstances in a very positive way. And I know that the Ramsey Lab is going to be critical in turning that hope for a cure into reality. And I'm very proud to have been a trainee of it. In the meantime the priority is definitely keeping the kids symptoms under control using medications that are already out there in the world and I came to learn that one of the most helpful resources not just for GRIN1 families but for many other rare groups is dialogue between families. I see all the time instances of parents chatting with one another about medications that worked or didn't work for their kids within these gene groups Um, and families will often take this information to their doctors and treatments will be changed for the betterment of the kids' health. In fact, many doctors will ask rare disease parents what's been working for the other families in order to help guide the next steps. Greed disorder families but also many other rare families need a tool that can tell you what meds already out there on the market are helpful, and which ones are not helpful, or even making things worse? Maybe something, you know, um, as a bonus that could be more private than Facebook groups. So, a year ago, I started building Variant, a GDPR and HIPAA compliant app that stratifies people based on their gene and variant, and tells our users what meds are helpful and what ones aren't, according to our other users, in an aggregated and de-identified way. So Variant's goal in the short term is to connect families with better meds, but in the longer term to be a liaison between pharma and rare diseases by providing the proof that there are real numbers of people that can benefit from the development of new medicines and even cures for a given rare disease. um, And then for those willing to be part of those clinical trials to be a liaison for them, it's free for patients and parents. And we've now launched our wait list. The app will be online in the spring. My unexpected finding was developing a skill set that would help people and which introduced me to a world of beautifully diverse kids when I thought I was just going to be a fundamental neuroscientist studying a random gene.
0: Here's a story from Caitlin Nichols.
1: The unexpected finding I'd like to share actually starts with an expected finding. So I studied cancer biology in graduate school, and for my thesis, I investigated a potential strategy to treat cancer. One of the challenges with chemotherapy is that while it kills rapidly dividing tumor cells, it damages other tissues too, and this can cause really difficult side effects for patients. So in contrast, the ideal cancer treatment would target tumor cells specifically, leaving the rest of the body unaffected. Our lab had identified one potential way to do this, and the details aren't too important for this particular story, but there are a couple things you should know. So the very first step in this huge project was testing this out, and the way to do that was using cancer cells grown in the lab and CRISPR gene editing technology. Second, based on everything we knew about how cells work and how CRISPR works, we basically knew already that this strategy would be effective, at least in the context of the lab, the cancer cells should die, and the cells representing the normal cells should live. In a person, it's, it's a whole other issue, but in the lab, we knew that this should work as long as I could get all the technical pieces of the experiment right. Of course, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds, because for anyone who's been in a science lab for school or talked to a scientist, there's about a million different things that could go wrong. And sometimes you don't even know what they are, you know, maybe you just wore the wrong color socks that day. So for this experiment with the help of other people in my lab, I spent weeks preparing, getting all the right materials and then finally testing it out. And I remember for this one test, the first time I had really gotten everything to work, I analyzed the data and it was perfect. The cells that were supposed to die died, the cells that were supposed to live lived. And as I said, this was a pretty straightforward experiment. There was nothing that complicated about it, and we pretty much knew that it would work. But I was so happy and so proud, and I remember telling my graduate advisor that this was the most beautiful data that I had ever generated. Now. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with unexpected findings if you already knew it was going to work? The thing is that graduate school was really challenging for me. It's challenging for a lot of people, but on a professional level, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to stay in science. I knew coming into graduate school, I didn't love being in the lab as much as I hoped I would. Things failed all the time, and it felt like I had so little control over these outcomes that were my life in this program. I considered dropping out multiple times. I even applied to other jobs. I had done a lot of science communication in undergrad. I was an editing minor, and I had all these other interests that I wondered if I would be happier exploring. So even though I knew that this program it was a really amazing opportunity, I was still really unhappy. On a personal level, I was at This very competitive institution where I felt like I was surrounded by people who were all science all the time. And while I loved science, that just wasn't me. And I was battling constant feelings of imposter syndrome, self doubt, not being good enough, and some really serious struggles with my mental health, honestly. And on top of all of that, I experienced some really big challenges in my personal life with family, friends, relationships, and it was just really hard. So coming back to that expected data, the beautiful data, but expected nonetheless, what about this story is an unexpected finding? My first unexpected finding from this story is that it's not just the big wins that count, that there's power in recognizing and celebrating the small wins. I had about four long years left in graduate school when I got that beautiful data and there would be plenty of highs and lows before I finished. But having those small wins as something I could anchor to back in the past when everything in the present was failing, helped me remember why I was doing what I was doing and increased my confidence to keep going. The second unexpected finding is related to the first. Looking back on that small win helped me see how much I had grown. Those experiments that I mentioned generally took about three weeks from start to finish, and I would normally run like two per week. But right after I finished my PhD, I was trying to get my paper published, and I needed to repeat that same experiment a bunch of times to add more data to the paper. And so there was this period of about six weeks where I was working 12 to 14 hour days, six days a week, just pumping out these experiments to get the data that I needed. And when I look back and compare the time when I got the beautiful data to that time when I was pumping out those experiments, I can see now just how much I had grown during that intervening time. Technical skills, time management, um, so many ways. The third unexpected finding is that despite all those challenges, I still love science. Maybe it was just the pressure cooker of graduate school, but I thought I would never find a job in science that I felt was fulfilling i love what i do now at all stripes and i get to be so much closer to the patients there's obviously still ups and downs of doing research just like before but i honestly feel like what i do every day is making a difference in the lives of patients and families and that is the best outcome that i could ask for so there are a few points here that i think apply to all of us in our respective fields whether we're scientists clinicians patients or advocates As we focus on our ultimate goal of tackling rare disease, we can still celebrate those small wins and look back to see how far we've come and hopefully we can find purpose and fulfillment as we work together toward one of the most meaningful missions there is.
3: Here's a story from Kim Aldinger. Unexpected findings. As a scientist, unexpected findings are exciting. But as the parent of twins with special needs, unexpected findings have been devastating. As a scientist, I love unexpected results. When an experiment is well designed and properly executed, but the results are puzzling. These results usually take some time to really understand. They lead to even more experiments and often require a lot of convincing for other people, even other scientists, to believe. I first had this experience as a graduate student. My project was to identify genes that were important for the development of a particular part of the brain called the cerebellum. I had a simple hypothesis. Genes important for normal cerebellar development must be expressed or active in that part of the brain. The reason I was looking at genes important for cerebellum development was to find genetic causes for a rare brain abnormality that affects this part of the brain called Dandy-Walker malformation. I had DNA samples from patients that all had a diagnosis of Nanny Walker malformation, and they had a similar part of chromosome 6 missing. This was back before exome and genome sequencing. I found that there were about eight genes located in that missing piece of chromosome 6 and checked their expression in the mouse cerebellum. Some were expressed, but others weren't. Luckily, other scientists had already made mouse models for these genes, so I wanted to take a deeper look at their cerebellum. And there was one mouse in particular that had an unusual looking back of its head that made me think there just might be something wrong with the cerebellum underneath it. I mentioned this to my boss and she was not convinced. Well, turns out I was right. When I looked at the cerebellum of the mouse more closely, I saw that it was not formed correctly. So the interesting part, the unexpected finding, well, this was one of those genes that was very clearly expressed outside of the cerebellum and the tissue right next to it that covers the cerebellum like saran wrap. But the cerebellum had not formed correctly in these mice. As a parent of twins with special needs, unexpected findings have been devastating. When she was eight months old, my daughter Chloe had her first appointment with the eye doctor. We had noticed that her left eye tended to drift off to one side. Chloe and her twin brother, Grayson, were born early at 33 weeks and three days. And 30% of preemies have a lazy eye. Most of the time, it's no big deal. Maybe patching or glasses or maybe even surgery. We were not prepared for the news we were about to receive. Chloe had a fancy eye test known as a visual evoked potential or VEP. They put a series of electrodes on her head to measure electrical activity like an EEG. Then she sat on my lap and watched a TV screen change patterns. This VEP test measures the amount of electrical signal that travels from the eyes to the brain. And Chloe's results? The doctor told us that he hardly detected any signal and expected Chloe would have no functional vision. In other words, my husband and I were just told that our typically developing child being evaluated for a lazy eye was expected to be blind. In that one instant, an unexpected finding changed our lives. I hope you've been enjoying this
0: podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little (laughs) pick-me-up, Ford's got you.